Again, it's entitled The Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, Newton wrote, and we just finished singing, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And Father, that's what this psalm really is all about. You have promised good to those who are your children. You've promised good to me and your word secures it. God, you've written it and promised it. And you won't go back on your word. So the issue isn't whether you've promised or whether the promise is secure. The issue is simply whether or not we will believe. Help us tonight to believe your word, to believe your promises, to believe that you, our Heavenly Father, desire what is good for us, to believe that if you would give up your own Son and not spare Him, but give Him over for us all, that surely you wouldn't withhold anything else we need. Help us believe that tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I may be dating myself by asking this, but that's okay. Most of you are older than me anyway. Um, That's starting to change, I guess, through the years. But I wonder if any of you remember that era of TV commercials when uh, there seemed almost all the time to be some taste test happening on TV in front of you on the commercials. Uh, It seemed like when I was a kid there was always uh, someone on TV blindfolded um, and eating either a Big Mac or a, or a, a Whopper or something and deciding, you know, seven out of ten people think the Whopper is better than the Big Mac or whatever it is. The most famous was the Pepsi Challenge. Now, does anybody remember the Pepsi Challenge? They may still do it. I don't know. 
Uh, but the Pepsi challenge was always people blindfolded and drinking Pepsi and then drinking Coke um, as though anyone who's ever tasted either one of them wouldn't know the difference. One of them's sweet and the other one is not as sweet. But anyway, they would blindfold people and they would taste the one and they would taste the other and they would always, as you know, prefer the Pepsi, at least in the commercials. Um, taste test. I think we're all familiar with that. And I want to submit to you tonight that there's a taste test here in Psalm 34. It's actually in verse 8, isn't it? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to say to you that's a taste test that God is offering us. Now, we, we may not read it that way. In fact, usually we read that verse. That's a fairly famous verse, and people quote it sometimes. And usually when we quote it and we, when we think of it, taste and see that the Lord is good, we simply quote it meaning, isn't God good? I mean, isn't he wonderful? We've tasted it. We've seen it. God is good. He gives us good things. Verse 10. He hears our cries. Verse 15. He's near to the brokenhearted. Verse 18. And all those statements are true by themselves. The Lord is good. And we can taste it. He is near to the brokenhearted. He does hear our cries. He does give good things. All those statements are true. But David doesn't give those as merely statements. And he doesn't give those kinds of statements by themselves. David is not just making statements here. David is issuing a challenge in this psalm. David is offering us a taste test here. You could call it the Psalm 34 challenge if you want to fit it into that commercial mold. And what David is saying here is, why don't you just test the Lord? Why don't you taste and see that the Lord is good? Taste, try God, try his ways out and see if he's good. How do we try God's ways out? Well, verse 8, take refuge in Him. Fear Him, verse 9. Verse 10, seek Him. Verse 15, live righteously or be righteous. Verse 18, have a crushed spirit. That word crushed um, probably more literally means contrite. Have a contrite spirit. Have a heart that realizes your sin and your need for God's grace. Try God out. Do these things. Taste God. Try Him out by doing what He says. And then see whether or not He's good. That's what David is saying. He's not just saying everybody realizes God is good. We just need to taste it. He's saying, no, take the test. Do these things. Seek refuge in God. Seek Him. Fear Him. Live righteously. Have a contrite heart. And then once you've tasted, once you've taken the test, see if God passes the test. See if He's really good. See if it works. See if, verse 8, you take refuge in Him, whether or not God will bless you as He says He will. Verse 9, fear the Lord and see if you find yourself in want. Verse 10, seek the Lord and see if you lack any good thing. Verse 15, be righteous, live righteously, and see if God doesn't hear your cries. Verse 18, be contrite in your spirit, be crushed in your spirit, and see if God doesn't draw near to you. That's what he's saying to us. Verse 8 is kind of the summary, and then the rest of the psalm is example after example of how you should take the taste test and see if God really is as good as he says he is. And the problem with people who who say out loud or say to themselves, the Lord's not been good to me. The Lord has promised good to me, but he hasn't secured it. He hasn't done it. The problem with people who say that is that they haven't taken the taste test. Right? 
Just like Pepsi would say, well, the problem with people who don't like Pepsi is they just not tasted it. We just need them to taste it, and then they'll see that it's better than Coke. Now, that may or may not be true, but it's always true with God. And the problem when people say, God's not really good, I don't see how a good God could do that. They haven't taken the taste test. They haven't taken the taste test. They cannot see whether God's ways are better than their ways unless they actually do the things that he challenges them to do in these verses. Unless they actually take refuge in him. Unless they actually fear him and seek him and begin to live righteously, live according to his word and to have a contrite spirit before him. Until someone does those things, they won't be able to see whether or not God is good because the goodness of God flows through those activities. According to these verses, you're not going to experience the goodness of God if you don't do what he asks you to do. You can't challenge God to be good to you and then he tells you how to be good and you say, I don't want to do that. Show me your goodness some other way. It doesn't work that way. You've got to take the test. And it's not just the people out there. It's the people in here, right? That's our problem too. When we murmur under our breath, I can't see the goodness of God in this situation. Or even when we don't say it that way, when we just murmur and complain, that's what we're saying, isn't it? I can't see the goodness of God in this situation. I don't know why God would do this. I don't know why this has to happen. Whenever we complain and doubt or we become angry with God and shake our fist at Him either literally or in our hearts, what is happening is not that God has ceased to be good, right? What's happening in those situations is that we've ceased taking refuge in Him or we've ceased fearing Him or we have ceased seeking Him or we've ceased living uprightly, or we've ceased having the contrite spirit that he calls for in these verses. That's the problem. The problem when we don't see that God is good is that we're not tasting him. We're not doing the things he tells us to do that would lead us to believe that he's good and help us to see that he's good. You will never know which is better, Coke or Pepsi, until you take the test and drink them both. And we've all drunk in plenty of what the world has to offer without even having to be told to. But we'll never know whether God's ways are better unless we actually open his word and begin to drink in his ways and do what he says and see if it doesn't work out better for us. Take the taste test and see if the Lord is good. This is a psalm filled with promises. Over and over again, David is saying, if you will taste the Lord, if you will seek the Lord, if you will follow the Lord, then he'll be with you. He'll do you good. He will meet your needs. He will bless you if you follow Him, if you taste Him, if you seek for Him. But it also has promises like those in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So David simply wants us to take the test. David, in writing this psalm, simply wants us to taste and see for ourselves, to take the challenge for ourselves and see whether or not the Lord is good. He is wanting us to test God, to try God. Not in the way that the devil asked Jesus to test God when he said, why don't you throw yourself down off this temple and see if God will rescue you. That's not the way God wants us to test him. That's not what David's saying. But over in the book of Malachi, God tells us himself to test him, doesn't he? He says, hey, why aren't you bringing me my tithes? If you would just bring them, I would bless you. So why don't you go ahead and test me, God says. You bring the full tithe into the storehouse and see if I don't come through. And that's what David is saying here. Why don't you just see if you would fear the Lord if he wouldn't bless you? Why don't you just see if you would begin to live rightly 
if he wouldn't bless you? Why don't you just see if you would begin to seek refuge in him, if you would have a contrite heart, if God wouldn't take care of you? That's what he's saying. Take the test. And I want to say to you that as David says that, he really says it again and again and again and again and again in these verses, but I want to just kind of divide the psalm into four main parts. So if you're trying to follow along in your mind and kind of have hooks to hang your thoughts on, four things that we can say. First, David himself takes the test. David tells us in verse 8 to take the taste test, but he takes it himself. And that's what we read about in verses 1 through 7. Also the title of the psalm. You'll notice that the title is kind of interesting, isn't it? Most of the psalms, many of the psalms have titles. Lots of them just say a psalm of David or a psalm of David according to this tune or that tune or on this instrument or that instrument. But this one's quite interesting, isn't it? A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. It's a strange title. It's the kind of title that makes you go, well, let me look in my margin notes and see what in the world he's talking about. When did David pretend he was crazy? And who's this Abimelech guy? And what you find is, if you look in your margin notes, if you have them in your Bible, you find that it refers you back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And in 1 Samuel 21, what's going on is David is fleeing from Saul. Saul is the king. David has been anointed to be the next king by Samuel. And David has become a powerful warrior. And Saul realizes that David is going to be taking his place and he doesn't like it. And so he's pursuing David and trying to kill David. And David is fleeing from him. So David's fleeing from Saul, and he flees to the land of the Philistines, particularly to the city of Gath, to a man whom he here calls Abimelech, who must have also been called Achish, because when you turn to 1 Samuel 21, he's called Achish. Maybe Abimelech was his nickname. That means my father is the king. So probably Achish, whose father was the king, is now king in Gath. And David says, I've got to get away from Saul. I'll go to the land of the Philistines. Saul will be afraid to pursue me there. I'll go to Gath, and maybe Achish will welcome me. And David goes to Achish in Gath, and he realizes, as we're going to see, if you want to begin to turn there, keep your finger in the book of Psalms, but turn to 1 Samuel 21, and you'll see that when David gets there, the response isn't quite what he had hoped. Akish doesn't bring out the welcome wagon and roll out the red carpet for David and say, David, we're glad you're here. In fact, Akish begins to reason with his counselors and say, this guy could be dangerous, this David, this powerful general. Read what happens there in verse 10 and following. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Akish, king of Gath, But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So here's the thing. David goes and he hears how the the counselors are saying, This guy's dangerous. Don't, Don't just throw open the gates and welcome him, Achish. And David hears that. And he feigns madness. He pretends like he's crazy. So that 
Achish will think David's lost his mind, and therefore David is not dangerous. He's no threat. I don't want to have anything to do with him, so just leave him alone. And that's what happens. And David gets away again and goes to a safer place. Well, that's a wonderful story of deliverance. But there's a part of the story that 1 Samuel doesn't tell us, isn't there? David didn't just escape from Gath because he was crying out like a madman. David, according to Psalm 34, verse 4, escaped from Gath because he was crying out to God. And David didn't just escape from Gath that day because drool was dribbling down his beard. But more so, David escaped from Gath that day because prayer was rising up to heaven. Verse 6, the poor man, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Why doesn't the author of 1 Samuel tell us that? I don't know. But David is telling us it wasn't just because I pretended I was crazy. It's because I cried out to the Lord. And those who fear the Lord are blessed. They're taken care of. Those who cry out to him, he hears their cries. And just as an aside, that's important because David is not simply saying, all I did was pray and then I just sat there and waited to see what was happening. David prayed and he worked. In this case, he worked it looking crazy. But the point is, some of us bend towards this direction. Most of us bend towards, I'm just going to work, work, work and try to make this happen. And it will never happen unless we cry to the Lord. But there may be a few of us who think, well, I'm just going to pray and then I'm just going to sit here on my couch and wait for God to provide the answer. And that's not it either. David did both. But the key is, in David's mind at least, the key was not his feigning madness. The key to his escape was that he cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. When the circumstances made it seem like David had come to the end of God's goodness, David took the test that he's urging us to take. David thought to himself, God promises to hear those who cry, so I'm not just going to sit here silent. God says he's good. It doesn't seem like he's being good right now, but if I would cry out to him, he's promised to hear me. So I'm going to take the test and see what happens. And God proved himself that day as God always proves himself to be good. But what if David hadn't cried to the Lord in verse 6? What if David had said, it doesn't seem like God is being good and therefore I'm just going to sit here and mope? And what if you don't cry to the Lord when it seems like God's goodness has come to an end in your life? What if you just look at the circumstances and decide, I'm just going to sit here and pout about it? What if you decide not to take the test and do the things God's told you to do and see if He wouldn't be good to you? Well, You will have no ground to stand on when you murmur, God isn't good to me. If God tells you, I'll be good to you when you cry out, and you don't cry out, you have no reason to cry about it later. So David records the events of that strange day as an example for us. He tells us the events in verses 1 through 7, how he was in trouble and he cried to the Lord And the Lord answered, and then beginning in verse 8, he uses that as an example for us so that we would taste and see that the Lord is good, so that we would take the test, so that we would cry out as the Lord has instructed us to. So he says, verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And in the rest of the psalm he says, therefore you cry out, you seek the Lord, you taste and see if the Lord doesn't hear you. 
if the Lord doesn't bless you, if the Lord is not good to you when you do what He instructs you to do in His Word. That's the first thing. David took the test himself and God passed. Secondly, I want you to see that in these verses there's a taste test for children. So, children, listen up. CJ, Reagan, Julia, Andrew, listen. The rest of you listen as well. But he speaks specifically to children in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. There are some wonderful promises here for you kids. Now, they're not promises of salvation. David does not say in these verses, if you keep your tongue from evil, you'll live forever. He doesn't say, if you depart from evil and do good, you'll go to heaven. That's not it. We go to heaven, we live forever because we trust in Jesus. But David does say, in effect, kids, your life will be better if you do these things. And your life will probably be longer if you do these things. If you will, keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit, Depart from evil and do good. If you would seek peace and pursue it, you would find that your life would be better and that you would probably live longer. These are great promises. They're not telling you how to get to heaven, but they are still wonderful promises about living life on this earth. We also need to say that the promises are like the Proverbs. In other words, these promises... If you do good, you'll live long. That's not a 100% guarantee. There are some people who don't do good and who live long. And there are some people who do good who don't live long. For instance, Eric Little. You remember the story of him, the missionary to China, died in his 40s. Served the Lord as a sprinter in the Olympics. Served the Lord as a missionary in China and died in his 40s. Jim Elliott died in his early 30s, serving as a missionary to the Alka Indians. Amber died last year in her late 20s, serving the Lord as a missionary in Ethiopia. So he's not saying every single person that ever does good is going to live to be 90. But he is giving a a very specific principle. If you, verses 13 and 14, keep your tongue from evil, children, keep your lips from speaking deceit, depart from evil and do good, and seek peace and pursue it, your life will be happier, your life will be better, and you will probably live longer as well. Now, kids, parents, the rest of you adults, are you willing to take the Psalm 34 challenge from these verses? Sometimes it doesn't seem like God's ways are better, right? Sometimes it seems advantageous to tell a lie or to be selfish or to argue with your teacher or your parents or to disobey your mom or dad or to take something from a friend or to fudge on your income taxes or whatever it may be. Sometimes it seems advantageous to do what everybody else would do. But Psalm 34 is reminding us God's way is better. God's way is much, much happier. And so if you desire life, and want your life to be good and lengthy, do things God's way. And children, one last thing. Those of us who live long enough to really mess up on these verses and to sometimes do right by these verses can attest to you that it's true. Life is better when we seek peace, when we tell the truth, and when we cease from evil and do good. Isn't it, adults? Life is much better. So David takes the test himself. He offers a taste test for children. And then the main bulk of the psalm, thirdly, is a taste test for Christians. 
a taste test for Christians, people who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him only for their salvation. And I say that the bulk of the psalm is for Christians and not just adults. I say that these promises that he offers are for Christians because the promises are offered to the people who, verse 8, take refuge in the Lord. And to the people who fear the Lord, verse 9. And to the people who seek the Lord, verse 10. To the people who have been declared righteous in God's sight and therefore are living righteous in God's sight, verse 15. The promises are made to the people who are crushed or contrite in their spirit. Who does that describe? It doesn't describe lost, unconcerned people. It describes God's people who seek the Lord and take refuge in Him and so on. So the psalm here is primarily written to people who believe on the Lord. And it's a test for us as well. What David is saying is, if you would continue taking refuge in the Lord, every time it seems that there's trouble in your life, if you would take refuge in the Lord, when there's an opportunity to either fear the Lord or fear man, if you would fear the Lord, when there's an opportunity to seek your own good or to seek junk on TV or the Internet or to seek the Lord, if you would seek the Lord, if you would live righteously, if you would be upright in your dealings with God and others, if you would be crushed or contrite in your spirit, you would see in all those circumstances the goodness of God coming through for you again and again and again and again. All of those things that initially marked you as a Christian, that you sought the Lord, that you feared the Lord, that you wanted to live rightly, that he declared you right based on what Jesus has done for you, that your heart was broken, that you took refuge in him, all those things that began you in the Christian life, if you would continue in those, you would continue to see God's goodness. It wouldn't just be that one time that happened and God was good to you by forgiving your sins, but he would continue to be good to you if you would continue to do those things. But, Christian, if you don't do those things in given circumstances, you won't see the goodness of God. That doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean He ceased being good or even good to you. It just means you won't see it and you won't get to enjoy it. If you don't seek the Lord, you won't get to enjoy the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, you won't get to see His blessings the way you would if you did fear Him. The promise, again, overall is taste, and you will see that the Lord is good. But if you don't bother to taste, if you don't bother to take the taste test, you won't see that the Lord is good. So then, how are we to be tasting and what are the good benefits that we should be seeing from the Lord's hand? First, just a reminder, verses 11 through 14 apply to adults too. He addresses them specifically to children, but it's true of adults too. If you desire life, If you desire length of days so that you can see good, then keep your tongue from evil, your lips from seeking deceit, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. That applies to you as well, adults. Second, what should we be tasting and what would we see from the Lord's hand if we did? Second, David says in verse 9, if you would fear the Lord, you would experience no want. If If you would fear the Lord, you would experience no want. That doesn't mean that you'll always get what you want. It means that you'll always get what you need. You won't lack anything that would be good for you if you fear the Lord. Now, are you ever tempted not to fear the Lord? Are you ever tempted to break the rules, to cut some corners, to fudge the numbers a little bit, just to kind of make your life work a little bit easier? If I would just shave off a little here, I wouldn't be in want. I thought about this because we're... we're, Deciding homeschool, Christian school, what kind of school, what are we going to do? And one of the things that makes the decision hard is to homeschool in the state of Ohio, they require a large amount of hours um, 
of classroom time, more hours than um, really seem helpful or necessary. But that's what they require. And as we've been thinking about that, I've thought to myself, I wonder how many Christians are out there. It's mostly Christians who homeschool. How many Christians are out there just fudging the numbers to make their life easier? I don't know. I hope there's none. But I doubt that there's none. We're all tempted to break the rules, to cut the corners, to fudge the numbers, and so on. But we needn't be. We needn't be. Verse 9. Fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. If you would just do what God's told you to do, be upright in your dealings, God will take care of all those other things that don't seem to be matching up right now. Alistair Begg, pastor in Cleveland, tells a story of a, a friend of his back in the U.K., who was going to open up a Ford dealership. And he had all the, the money on the table and everything ready to go, and he sat down with the guy from Ford uh, who was going to pre- prepare this franchise for him. And one of the things was, here are the hours. Here's the hours that all the Ford dealerships run on. You know, this, These hours on Monday, these hours on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And the guy said, well, we have a problem because I go to church on Sunday. I want my employees to go to church on Sunday. We're not going to open and the guy says, well, these are the hours. And he says, well, that's not the hours that we're going to run. And he says, well, if you don't do these hours, you don't get the Ford franchise. And the guy says, well, I don't have the Ford franchise then because we're going to church on Sunday and we're not going to be open. And then he said, but I'll tell you what, if you give me this franchise and you let me be open six days of the week, we'll sell more Fords than anybody else in the country in six days than they sell in seven. And the guy flustered said, okay. And he did. He had one of the most successful Ford franchises in the U.K. Here's the point. He feared the Lord more than he feared Ford, more than he feared his job, more than he feared his livelihood, and God blessed him. It's not to say you're going to have the most successful position in your company or whatever it is, but the promise is you won't have any want. God will meet your needs if you fear him. Thirdly, What should we be tasting and what will we see if we do? David says in verse 10, If you would seek the Lord, if you would seek the Lord, you would lack no good thing. I hope it makes you think immediately of a New Testament passage. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Maybe Jesus had this passage in mind when He gave us that much more famous verse. But in verse 10, David says, you seek the Lord, you seek his kingdom, you seek what's best for God and his people and his kingdom, and you won't lack any good thing. And again, I ask you, are you ever tempted to seek your own welfare, to hold back on God? I am, in various kinds of ways, with my time, with my money, and so on. Let's just take money. Have you ever been tempted to to skip a monthly offering, tithe to the church? And you tell yourself, well, well, we'll make it up next month. I mean, like, if you can't do it this month, you're going to have double next month. But that's what you tell yourself. And you say, you say, it'll be okay. We'll seek this. We'll seek our own welfare this month. And then we'll come back and seek God next month. Or maybe tempted to scale back your missions giving. Now I realize if, if your numbers of intake go down, way down, you have to scale back a lot of things. But the point is, sometimes we think, well, I'd like, really like to have that X. And so if I would just take a little bit off of the Y, which is the missions giving, then we can have the X. Tempted to do those things. Tempted to seek your own welfare instead of what is best for God's kingdom. Don't be. 
Because, verse 10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger. The kings of the jungle, the ones who are at the top of the food chain, even they suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Isn't that an amazing parallel? The lions are at the top of the food chain. They can get anything they want, and even they're hungry sometimes. But we as Christians, if we'll put ourselves at the bottom of the food chain and put God and His people and others first, we won't want. The top of the food chain is still hungry. We put ourselves at the bottom, and we don't lack any good thing. Some of you have done this in relation, again, to your money. Some of you somewhere along the line have had someone look you in the eye and say, You just tithe for one month and see if God doesn't give you enough at the end of the month. See if that 90% doesn't go just as far or farther than the 100% or the 95% that you were living off of before. Some of you have had someone look you in the eye and you said, okay, I'll do it. And if you did it, I'm certain that God passed the test. And if you would do it now, whether it's your money or your time or whatever it is, if you would do it, if you wouldn't hold back on God but seek Him first, He would pass the test. He would work so that you lack no good thing. Fourthly, what should we be tasting and what good benefits would we see from the Lord's hand? Well, in verses 15, 16, and 17, and then again in verse 19, David says basically this to us. Be righteous. Be upright. And the Lord will protect you. Be upright. Do what's right and the Lord will protect you. Now, we could apply that in some of the same ways we've already applied. Upright in business, upright with our money, upright in our dealings with other people, and so on. But let me just give you an example from Sunday school this past week. The children's Sunday school class this past week was about Peter in prison. He was in prison because he was preaching the gospel, and the people of God prayed for him, and an angel came and delivered him. Just exactly what God promises here. may not happen that way for you or me exactly, but God would be good to you. But here's the thing. That was the lesson. So I asked one of the children, why was Peter in prison again? Because he was preaching the gospel. Okay. Would you be willing to go to prison for preaching the gospel? No. Okay, honest answer. And hopefully over time, that answer could be, yes, I would do that. But... Here's, here's my point. Some of us adults, some of us adults with far smaller questions than would you go to prison for preaching the gospel, shake our heads and say no. Would you be willing to be thought poorly of at work or to even get in trouble at work for being the religious guy? No, I don't know if I would do that. Would you be willing to face embarrassment at family gatherings as you talk about Jesus and everyone else thinks you're crazy or thinks that you think you're better than everyone else? Are you willing to do that? No. Are you willing to go to Africa? I mean, some of you may have sat here last Wednesday night as Brian talked about Kenya and said to yourself, I admire Brian for doing that. I don't know if I would do that. I mean, it's dangerous. Who knows what could happen? John and Ashley went back, went there, and there was a coup, and they had to come home. I don't know if I could do that. Well, we shouldn't be afraid. In the office, in the family gathering, in Africa, wherever it is, we shouldn't be afraid to do what's right. For does not God promise in verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles? Does he not promise in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all? 
And did he not say back in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them, just like he did for Peter. For you, the rescue may be heaven. For you, the rescue may be release from prison. For you, the rescue may be that they don't laugh at you at the company picnic. Or for you, the release may be that though they do laugh at you, you rejoice in the fact that you can be persecuted for the Lord. But the Lord won't leave you hanging if you do what's right. Finally, think about verse 18. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. I already told you that the word crushed there is, is probably literally meaning something like contrite to those whose hearts are contrite, to those who are repentant over their sin. So he's not making a promise here. This is not a country western song. In other words, this isn't God is with you when your woman leaves you and your dog dies. Now, he's with you then if you're his child, but that's not what he's saying here. This isn't country western. This is gospel. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, the people who are crushed in their spirit because of their sinfulness. They see that they mess up again and again and again. The Lord's near those people. Now, some of us are afraid to be those people. We're afraid to come clean and admit our guilt, maybe to others, maybe to God, maybe even to ourselves, because we don't want to feel ashamed, or we don't want to have to swallow our pride, or we don't want to deal with the repercussions, or we don't want to deal with what people are going to think, or we don't want to admit weakness or whatever it is. Some of us won't go here. Or we won't go here about specific sins in our life. We don't want to be crushed in spirit. And so our lips remain sealed and our hearts remain hard and our lives remain untouched and unblessed by Psalm 34, 18. But if we would allow ourselves to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, God would be near to us. Never do I feel God as near to me. I feel Him near to me at different times, but never do I feel Him as near to me as when I repent. Sometimes it's in my bed at night as I think about the day. Sometimes it's in my car as I drive. Sometimes it's on the floor with my wife. Sometimes it's standing right here singing the songs and thinking about all that's in my heart as opposed to what I'm singing and realizing I'm a wretch and I don't deserve at all to stand in front of these people and yet I'm singing about how you died to save a wretch like me. And in all those times when God crushes my spirit and makes me see how needy I am and how sinful I am. Those are the best times. Those are the times when He draws most near. Not simply in the crushed spirit, but because when my spirit is crushed, it gives me a chance to appreciate the cross. It gives me a chance to remember the Savior's love, to remember how much I've been forgiven. And He who's forgiven much loves much. God is near when our hearts are broken and when we are crushed in spirit. We need to allow that to happen. And some of us, frankly, remain entirely separated from God and in our sins to this day because we won't allow that to happen. We won't repent. But the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. But if we never allow ourselves to be crushed, to be repentant, to be broken, we never experience the nearness of God. And that brings me to the final main point, which is this. Not only does David take the taste test, not only does he have a taste test for children who are just starting out in the world, and not only is there a taste test for Christians, but finally, briefly, there is a taste test here for unbelievers in the final three verses of the psalm. 
We just got a taste of it, pardon the pun, in verse 18b, didn't we? The Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's talking about salvation, which is the need of the unbeliever. The need of the person who's still in his sins is to be saved. But then David says it again and emphasizes it in verse 22 at the end of the verse. A taste test for unbelievers, for those who are still in their sins. He says, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you're an unbeliever, if you've never entrusted yourself to Christ, your biggest fear tonight should not be what people at the office are going to think of you or what your family is going to think of you. Your biggest fear should be, if I die tonight apart from Christ, I'll be condemned forever. And if God brings you to the place where you realize that, then he also offers you a test. Will you take him at his word when he says, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned? How does that work? Well, let's just say you haven't done the things we've been talking about tonight. Let's just sit here and you say, I haven't sought the Lord like I should. I haven't feared the Lord like I should. In fact, when you were talking about fearing the Lord versus fearing man, I could think of all sorts of ways that I've been fearing man. I haven't done it. I haven't been righteous like we talked about. I haven't done what's upright. I can list five ways just this afternoon where I did what was wrong. I can see it all through my life from the time I was a child. I haven't done these things. Here's... Here's news for you. None of us have done these things. Even if you sit here tonight and you think, man, I'm so glad this psalm is about me. No, it's not. You haven't done these things. Neither have I. You can't save yourself. But verse 22b, the Lord saves those who take refuge in Him. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. We deserve to be condemned. We read this psalm. We realize what we're supposed to be. We realize that we're not what we're supposed to be. And we say, I don't deserve God's forgiveness and yet none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned does this one act of taking refuge in him kind of cancel out all the other bad things that we've done no so how can it be that we've done all these things and yet none who take refuge in him will be condemned well the answer is is obvious isn't it in the new testament all throughout let me just give you one verse how is it that none who take refuge in the lord will be condemned well Because he, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on your behalf, so that you become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus didn't sin like you have and like I have, and so God put him on the cross and made him to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God allows us to trade places with Jesus. I'll put your sins on him and condemn him for it. And I will give you his righteous standing and give you salvation that he alone deserves. On the cross, Jesus died for you so that you wouldn't have to be condemned. He died in your place. In fact, David prophesies about it in verse 20, doesn't he? When he says he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, he's talking about the righteous person in general, but The author of John picks up on that as Jesus hangs on the cross. and As they hung Jesus on the cross and they put nails in his hands and feet and they put a spear in his side, not one of his bones was broken. God kept his promise, even to his son, as he hung there on the cross. And because he hung there on the cross, Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as David says it, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So if you're here tonight and you're saying, I don't know Christ. I don't know this forgiveness. I don't know this goodness of God that you're asking me to taste. 
Take refuge in Jesus who died for you and you will not be condemned. Try out God's plan, you who are still in your sins. Try Jesus. Test Him. Taste and see if He is not good. 